0: On the fifteenth day of the second month, after they had left Egypt, the whole company of Israel moved on from Elam to the wilderness of Sinai, which is between Elam and Sinai. The whole company of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron there in the wilderness. The Israelites said, why didn't God let us die in comfort in Egypt, where we had lamb stew and all the bread we could eat? You've brought us out into this wilderness to starve to death. Allow me to share some time with you this morning from the thought, there is no before. I stood Looking over the damage, trying to remember the sweetness of life on Earth. But I couldn't remember. Do you know what I remember? I remember damage, then escape. These are the words recited throughout the television series Station Eleven, based on the 2015 novel of the same name by Emily St. John Mandel. The series opens with the beginning of the end of the world. A global flu has hit, and there are predictions that this is the real deal. The flu of all flus, 99% of the population will be wiped out. The collapse of culture has already begun. There is a gridlock at the hospital with people frantically filing the ER in need of care. A plane crashes into a Ferris wheel. Folks are scurrying, trying to get home to be with their families. Some are stocking up on groceries. News reporters are crying and abandoning their post until there is no news at all. And then it happens. The world ends. For a few days, there's still electricity. For a few more weeks, there's some running water. But then that all stops. Eight-year-old Kirsten and Jeevan, the stranger she ends up with the night the world ends, peer out of a penthouse apartment overlooking what was once Chicago only to see a snow-covered ghost town that has no name. It has no name because there is no before, because people name things. People create boundaries they call towns and cities, and in this new world, in this lawless world where 99% of the population has vanished, what even is territory? What is municipal limits? To even in Kirsten stand looking over the damage, trying to remember the sweetness of life on Earth. Many of us find ourselves in that moment right now. Perhaps it's not the first time you've been here. For some of us who are survivors of natural disasters, we know what it's like to look over the damage. We know what it's like to survey the actual physical upending of our lives and homes. But for the rest of us, we stand looking over the damage of this country the rolling back of laws that were meant to protect and liberate, the rising domestic terrorism that aims to make us prisoners in our own homes, the continual disruption and death caused by our very own pandemic reality. We stand looking over the damage, trying to remember the sweetness of life on earth, trying to remember a time when God bless America meant something to some of you, trying to remember a time when celebration and joy weren't so hard to come by, a yesteryear when church sanctuaries were full and life revolved around religiosity, however dangerous that was. They stand, looking over the damage. Kirsten and Jeevan, as the stench of death infiltrates the high-rise apartment they've been barricaded in for weeks, As food dwindles, Jeevan and Kirsten must plan to leave their fortress or perish. They must plan to escape the damage and go into an unknown future or die in the captivity of the luxurious building that has become a mausoleum. Station 11 spans over a 20-year period. The year count starts the day that the pandemic hits. Time had been reset by catastrophe, Mandel writes. There is no before, only now. We we see an interweaving of stories depicting how the few survivors are connected in this mysterious web of never-ending touch points. There are several groups that create new life together, either by choice or by force. Some survived because they were stranded in the airport the day the world ended. Others survived because they managed to hide out in the woods. They are the 1% forced into exodus from the old world into a new world, from the old way of doing and being to the new way of doing and being. Their incessant and desperate creativity was their only chance of surviving the exodus. They made sandals out of old truck tires. They, they turned the airport terminal into an herbal greenhouse. Their ingenuity was chance to have new life at the end of the world. It's not hard for many of us to imagine the exodus from what was to what now is. For some of us, our lives have been a series of life-changing, world-ending catastrophes, one after the other. I was recently compiling a list of all of the earth-shattering events that took place in the first 18 years of my life, some of which include the Oklahoma City bombing, My neighbor's daughter was killed in that one. The Columbine High School shooting, September 11th, Hurricane Katrina, the Virginia Tech massacre, all before 18, life-altering events that forced many of us out of an old world into a new, strange, hard world that consisted of removing our shoes at the airport and shooter drills in schools and rebuilding homes from nothing and wearing masks, we live in a constant exodus, a constant state of transition by force, a constant renegotiating of the way we do life together as we redefine normal for the sake of survival. It is in that redefining of normal that we meet the Israelites in the 16th chapter of Exodus today. They have just come through a harrowing ordeal of escape. In his publication, The Talking Book, Alan Dwight Callahan reminds us that Exodus literally means the way out. It is a lone word from the Greek, Exodus signifies the road of escape. After generations of enslavement at the hands of the Egyptians and a series of plagues that kill many and threaten the livelihood of others, the congregation of Israel is finally freed by Pharaoh. This freedom is temporary, however. They arrive to the Sea of Reeds only for Pharaoh's army to pursue them once more. Now, for those of us in here who grew up watching The Prince of Egypt, you know the story already. But, but just in the nick of time, Moses raises his staff and the sea parts in two directions, giving the Israelites a way out. As Pharaoh's army follows behind, the sea closes in on them, drowning them. On the other side of the sea, the Israelites, led by Miriam, sing the song of the sea. Sing to the Lord, for God is highly exalted, both horse and driver. God has hurled into the sea. Callahan reminds us that various oppressed groups have found hope in the Exodus story. African Americans have heard, read, and retold the story of Exodus more than any biblical narrative. Even the Puritans imagined their migration from the old world as an exodus, for, for better or for worse. It was an escape from the religious damage. It is an aspirational tale for anyone seeking liberation from bondage. As the Israelites wander through the wilderness, God makes provisions for their survival, but it isn't all copacetic. That, that cute little ending at the Prince of Egypt where they get to the other side and they, they sing there can be miracles and they have a celebration, that, that was not the end of the story. Chapter 16 lets us know that there is dissent in the camp. There is whispering of discontent in the congregation. I know church people know about that. The people bicker and grumble against their leaders as they struggle to reconcile the passing of their old world and the beginning of a new strange hard one. Their distrust in their leadership has boiled over at the beginning of this chapter and they confront Moses and Aaron saying, you have brought us out in the wilderness to die. You see, Moses, in Egypt, we had all the stew we wanted, all the fried chicken and lamb chops and and croissants, and now we don't have any of this. We have bitter water. You have brought us out in the wilderness to starve to death. Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. They did not trust their leaders. Fear, hunger, thirst, sporadic warfare, episodic mutinies, and the people's grumbling backward glances to Egypt mark their march to Sinai, Callahan says. In the adversity that attended their newfound freedom, the Israelites sometimes looked longingly to their former bondage and complained bitterly that liberty in such a hostile wilderness would be the death of them. Why didn't God let us die in comfort in Egypt? There is dissent in the camp and some are so preoccupied with their discomfort, they have started romanticizing captivity. The mind can do dangerous things when we've endured a trauma, and most of us in this room, if we've been alive the past two and a half years, have endured trauma, both collective and personal. It is not uncommon for traumatized people to start acting out. It is not uncommon to want to return to stability, however dangerous it was, or to desire to go back to normal, even if it means going back to being disenfranchised, even if it means going back to being manipulated by political leaders, even if it means going back to excluding the disabled, unhoused, and poor folks among us, but we can't live in that place. Normal wasn't healthy. Normal wasn't sustainable. When some people say, I want to go back to before, I wonder what before they're talking about. It wasn't sustainable. It wasn't healthy, not for us, not for the Israelites. In other words, it wasn't all lamb chops and focaccia back in Egypt. It wasn't all rainbows and flowers back in February 2020 either. Our individual comfort was not a sign of collective okayness. The before was not great. The end of our world as we knew it only further exposed the cracks in the surface, the affordable housing cracks, the food insecurity cracks. When we romanticize the before, we cut ourselves off from the hope that lies in the possibility of building a better, more just community. When we hang on to what was, we never get to experience the fullness of what is. The life-saving creativity that is birthed out of the disruption of the status quo. When we cling to a before. That allows the rich to get richer while the poor get poorer. We never get to experience an equaling of the playing field so that everyone could have what they need to survive and thrive. Nah, before was not the best we could do. I believe this was the point the character named the prophet was trying to make in Station 11. Years into the new post-pandemic world, the controversial prophet repeats over and over again to his followers, there is no before. There is no before, he says, no after, only now, the past is safe, everything else changes. I imagine God saying to Moses in the moment of the people's diatribe, there is no before, Moses." Well, well, there was kind of a before, but it wasn't something to be romanticized. Tell the people that I am doing a new thing. I'm about to rain nourishment from the sky. Everyone will have what they need, the fuel for their future. Today is a new day. There is no before, only now. It's hard for us to see the now. The beauty of the now, the provision of the now, when we are always looking backwards. It's hard for us to see the work that is needed in the now, a work that requires creative new models of organizing and stretching our imaginations and letting go of past expectations. Provision came for the congregation of Israel in the wilderness even after they had assailed their leaders with their discontent. It came in abundance, but it looked different. It came as unexpected quail covering the camp in evening. No, this wasn't the all-you-can-eat lamb stew buffet they had back in Egypt that they were used to, but it came. It came in strange ways, such as manna appearing in the dew of morning. Now, the interesting thing about manna, and many scholars have different views on exactly what manna was, but most presume that it wasn't actually bread at all. It it certainly wasn't the bread that they were used to in Egypt. In fact, when manna falls from the sky, the Israelites stand around asking each other, what is this? This did not look like the Bojangles' biscuits they were used to. It is unfamiliar provision. And the interesting thing is that this flaky, wafer-like substance that was likened to a coriander seed in its shape, in its form, in its actual function was not that at all. In verse 31, the writers tell us that the people thought it tasted slightly sweet. Like wafers made with honey, there there was a sweetness of life on earth. It was something that could make bread perhaps, but it wasn't bread itself. But it was only possible to feed the people if they gathered it and organized it with the help of those who had the wherewithal to dream beyond the bread of their past. What God gave them was something they'd have to co-create with God. God did not give them what they had in the old world because the old world had passed away. There is no before. God did not them want them recreating the things of the past like we do in our modern world. We recreate systems of class. We recreate old programs that no longer serve us. What God gave them was something they'd have to organize, something they'd have to dream into being. With this flaky seed like substance that spread across the floor of the desert, I believe God was saying to the people, What was in the past is in the past. I'm giving you a new recipe for the thing that will sustain you in the wilderness. What was in the past is the past. I'm giving you something new, a new recipe. New recipes for a new world that is upon us. If you want to eat, you're going to have to activate your imagination. If you want to live and you want others to live, you'll have to make some bread with me. In this new reality, the people would have to shift their expectations. They'd have to be creative with what they were given. They'd have to usher in a new diet and embrace a way of evening out the resources. If you want to survive in the wilderness, if you want to survive in a pandemic, if you want to survive in an economic collapse, if you want to survive amidst a political meltdown, you are gonna have to throw out spoiled and stale ways of existing comfortably in captivity and you're gonna have to cook up some new ideas that will help us transform the conditions of our living together. They'd have to cook up new ideas, not just to transform the lives of the elite among us, not just to transform the lives of the privileged and the wealthy among us, but so that all of us, all people have an equal chance at survival. We're going to have to let go of the before and embrace the now. Beloved, God has given us the seeds to dream a new world into being, and it's, it's going to require work, and it's going to look different, and it's going to require cultivation and creativity and stretching the imagination. I imagine God saying to us, will you make bread with me? Will you gather the flakes, the unknown seed-like substance, and make something with me? Will you co-create with me this new future you're going to have to imagine because the past is gone? Will you make bread with me? God is dropping seeds of hope from the sky, and I wonder if we will take them and make something beautifully life-giving, or will we continue to wallow in lamentation about a past that's never coming back? about systems that will never change until we disrupt them. Will you make bread with me? God is asking. The interesting thing about the manna that has struck me was the sweetness of it. Even in the wilderness, there was a sweetness of life on earth. I imagine a rewriting of... The phrase from Station Eleven that says, I stood looking over the damage, trying to remember the sweetness of life on earth. And while I don't remember the sweetness of what was, I remember the sweetness of what is, the sweetness of what can be, of wafers that taste like honey, of freedom, of liberation, of letting go, of the before. For there is only now, and everything changes—recipes, rules, realities. Will we be bold enough to step into the now with God? Will we be bold enough to stretch our imaginations with God? Will we be bold enough to abandon our expectation and stale lamentation? Will we be bold enough to make bread for the sake of life and for the sake of liberation of all of God's people on earth? Amen.